Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The series that we are in is titled Sojourn. We're looking at 1 Peter, the letter that he wrote as he was carried along. But as we said early in the fall, we're also going to be looking at Peter's life. The last few weeks we've been in the first or the second chapter of 1 Peter. This morning we're going to look at, at Peter's life, particularly as it relates to prayer and as it relates to his responsibility, his call to be the leader of the early church. And what a story it is. We'll be in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I think we enjoy going back in time to celebrate the beginning, the beginning of of lots of things. This church is in its 25th year of existence, and many of you were there in the beginning. You remember the stories very well of putting up chairs, breaking things down, collecting the first offering and really not knowing what to do with it. You were overwhelmed by the number of people that came. But that is not where this church's history begins. I want you to see this morning how beautiful that is. And what I mean by that is that the beginning of this church goes all the way back to this gathering in the upper room. Picture this. Peter, over not that many days, has taken his sword and chopped off the ear of one who was coming to arrest Jesus. He witnessed Jesus put that man's ear back on his head. Before that, he was told by Jesus that he would actually deny him. And Peter denied that that was even possible. I will lay down my life for you. But he did three times. I do not know the man. He witnessed Jesus' brutal crucifixion, his death. And then he entered into the empty tomb. Jesus wasn't there. And then with the others in another room, Jesus simply shows up. He's alive. Peter witnessed all that. And then not long after, he's on a boat in despair. And he sees a man cooking breakfast. And it's Jesus. And there Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? Three times. And three times he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then he says, feed my sheep. 
And now Peter in the book of Acts is with ten, the other ten disciples. And Jesus is actually speaking his last words to them while he's on this earth. And I'm not sure they really know that this is about to happen, but Jesus says to them earlier in chapter one, just a few verses ahead of where we read, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then listen, when Jesus had said these things, as they, it's Peter and the other 10, were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. So Peter is now watching Jesus ascend. Can you imagine what that might have looked like? You're there with these 10 others that you've been walking with for three years. You, you have had an amazing number of days. And now Christ, your friend, your king, your redeemer is ascending up and you don't know what to do about it. Here he goes. He is moving up. He is moving up. He is ascending and their eyes are fixed on him. How long did it take? How long did they watch? We're not told. We're simply told that while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Now these are angels. Add that to the story. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? Well, because our friend just floated up. He is ascending and he's God and he's king. And I, I saw him put a man's ear back on his head after I sought to cut his head off. I'm sure that's what he was aiming to do. Jesus, he just went up. Now what? We're gazing because we don't know what else to do. And so they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's all we have. So my first thought would be, okay, when? And based on what I read of Peter and his words, especially in his letter, I'm very confident that they believed it would happen in their lifetime. I don't know if they thought it would be in a week, a month, a year, but it wasn't. And it still hasn't happened. And that is our connection. Peter was the one told by Jesus that he would be the head of the church. Not the head in the sake that Jesus is. Jesus is the only head. But he would be the one that the Lord would use here on earth to build this church. And so here's what happens. They stop gazing up. We don't know what words they spoke to one another, but we know that they stopped gazing up and they moved towards action. And the action took them a Sabbath day's journey. Where? To the upper room. And that's when we come to this text. 
And this is the first gathering of the church after Jesus ascended. That is what we are still connected to. That is the beginning, essentially, of the New Testament church gathering after the Lord ascended. And let me tell you something that's very important. We are not just connected to it theologically or because of some kind of ideology. We are one with the Lord, the head of this church. We are one with those brothers and sisters who have gone before us thousands and thousands of years ago. This is the only relationship you have like this that is going to last for all eternity if you are one with Christ. That's why this morning I think it's important for us to recognize from where we've come. We have so much in common with this gathering. Namely, the head of the church is Jesus. Namely, that the Lord is continuing to do that very work which he promised to do. Therefore, you, if you're in Christ, are a result of what Jesus promised would happen. Do you, do you see that? And so here, Peter and the other ten move towards the upper room. And when they go into the upper room, they're there with other women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what does the word of God tell us they did? They prayed. It says they were continually together in one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. My title today is Return to Pray. We are in the same position this group of people were in. And we are praying to the same God that they were praying to. That God is the one that about half a day earlier they watched ascend into heaven. And they're praying to him and through him, covered by his blood and righteousness. I don't think we should let the reality of that story be lost. If you're part of his church because you were one with Christ, this is more significant than we know. This union with Jesus as the head of the church is the same union that was present here. And what did they do? They prayed. We have been given the gift as a means of grace by God to pray. Yet most Christians, when they talk about their own spiritual life, will say that prayer is hard. Why is it? Why is it hard? I'm going to give you four M's. I gave you AAA a couple of weeks ago. I'd like to have said it could be 3M, but it can't. It's got to be four. And then I'm going to actually go a little bit deeper. But I want you to hear these four M's. Why don't we pray? First, 
As people, especially people with a Western mindset, we love methods. E.M. Bounds, who wrote a very little book, a lot of books on prayer, but a very little book called Power Through Prayer said this, men are interested in methods. God is interested in men. Men mighty in prayer. It's true. I've been involved in church work, ministry, young life, all sorts of things a long time. And I know from what I've read and experienced that any great movement of God has been saturated in prayer. Just study church history. Yet I also know that the tendency of the flesh, especially the Western mindset, is to think constantly about plans and methods. Methods matter. God gives us methods. But we are so tempted to focus on methods and then actually inform God of our methods and ask him to bless them. Instead of being men and women who really are mighty in prayer, even though we know how powerful prayer can be. The disciples in the early church give us the right example. They didn't go back to the upper room and pull out a whiteboard and begin to sketch out the strategy for how to reach people. They went and they prayed, and they waited, and then the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit gave them methods. It wasn't long before they were praying and then casting lots to see who the next disciple would be. The church exploded in growth, and they knew that they needed other people to play different roles. Methods matter, but not before prayer. Another reason why we don't pursue prayer the way we ought is because we love measurements. We love to to define the work of God by nickels and noses. We like to look at our own lives each day and see whether or not it was a productive day based on certain measurements. Are measurements wrong? Not at all, but they don't always tell the whole story. I think it's especially true when we think about prayer and the way in which it it seems like it might not be accomplishing anything. And then because of our drivenness and the inability to measure it, it seems like it might actually be a waste of time. We would never say that, but deep down, that is there. Let me give you an example. Heather Holdsworth, in a book called How Prayer Impacts Lives, wrote this. She's not someone you've probably ever heard of, but I like what she wrote. With each morning, demands roll in. Flurries of tasks squeeze the stopwatch and the ticking begins. 16 hours of usable minutes and so much to do. Now some of you are thinking, 16? Slacker, she doesn't need that much sleep. 16 hours of usable minutes begin and so much to do. The countdown arrives unbidden before one page of scripture sees daylight. She says to herself, focus, open eyes, open Bible. Each minute I sit there looking at the Bible, puts pressure on the next for results. 
to find some bright phrase to align our day. With the reading finally over comes the puzzle of prayer. It seems a call to inaction. Be still, wait, abide. The instructed, the biblical instructed pause on our lives of purpose. Can we seriously afford the time? I think so many of us feel that way because it's difficult to measure what's happening in prayer. I know of many pastors who are told by those who supervise them, oh, well, prayer is not part of your job. That's not part of the 50 or 60 hours of work you're supposed to be involved in a week. That's what you do before you come. First part of my job description says abide. It's the same for every staff member in our church, every staff member in our church. The second is to pray. My friend's prayer is the work, but it's hard to measure. And because of that, we're uncomfortable at times thinking of it as being so fruitful, which leads to a third M, and that is mystery. There is a mystery that exists in prayer where we're not exactly sure what's happening and how effective it is, even though we're told the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. There is a mystery that's taking place. This God of the universe who's created all things hears all of our prayers at once. He can act upon all of these prayers. He is not overwhelmed. Yet we don't really understand all that's taking place. And we can become very uncomfortable with praying. When I went to seminary, I think, I didn't say it this way, but I think I went to a seminary to essentially eliminate, the, uh, to eliminate mystery. I went to seminary so I could answer your questions and my own questions and essentially eliminate mystery. I love seminary with mystery being my favorite word. But I want to tell you how in some ways afraid of mystery we are in a tradition like ours. Our denominational seminary, while I was a student from 1994 to 1997, did not offer one single course on prayer. Not one. Do you think that's bad? I do too. It's a means of grace. But there's something there that we're not comfortable with, and we should be. Because it's in the mystery and awe that God reveals his transcendence, his power, but also his presence. The last M, methods, measurements, mystery, is very simple, but it's me. I am the problem of prayer. And the reason is because deep down inside me, and I believe deep down inside you, there is self-reliance, in self-preservation. Self-reliance is that old idea of an unbiblical theme that God helps those who help themselves. I recently heard that from a counselor who's a Christian counselor. And I said, you know, that's not biblical. She didn't know. Self-reliance 
is heresy. It is anti-God. But it's so deeply wired in us. So is self-preservation. And one of the reasons why we don't avail ourselves of the means of grace in prayer, particularly of praying with one another, is what Chase said so beautifully. We are afraid of people really knowing us. Our elders had a retreat this weekend and Pat Hoban came and talked to us, spoke to us about what it means to truly be shepherds. It was amazing. He shared a quote from Paul Tripp that I think is very powerful. Paul Tripp says this, we tend to have permanently casual relationships that never grow into real intimacy. There are things we know about each other, but they fool us into thinking that we know the human beings who live within the borders of those details. It's in a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Let me say it again. We tend to have permanently casual relationships that never grow into real intimacy. What happens is we share to a point, but that self-preservation kicks in, even amongst men and women who have met together for some time. And what that means is we share prayer requests that aren't that deep and aren't that honest. I've done that, and I've been a part of groups that do that. That's self-preservation. I've actually been in groups where I might say, how can I pray for you? And people say, I'm good. I'm good right now. And they may feel like they are. But that leads to my final two points. We've got to go a little bit deeper. Why is it we don't avail ourselves of the means of this grace called prayer? When the early church shows us its significance, it's the first thing they did. I think it's for these two reasons. And this is really important because these two reasons are the very things that keep us from praying as we ought, but they're also, when the switch takes place, the very reasons why we run to God. First, we don't really understand our desperate need for Jesus, this side of heaven. We have language that sounds like we do, but this journey towards heaven is hard. It's hard because of the noise of the news we heard of Jeff Berta and the physical realities. It's hard in relationships. It's hard with work. It's hard. We have desperate need for Christ. And sometimes we tend to think that we only need prayer when it's catastrophic, when the marriage really is against the ropes, or the child really has wandered away. My friends, it's not always that dramatic. Sometimes just the tyranny of each day wages war on our soul. A woman named Esther Harding, I think beautifully speaks to this. As a young mom, she says this, it is intense, 
hard work being a mom of two toddlers with a husband who travels for work. In my day-to-day life, there are frequent temptations to be short-suffering, not long-suffering. I need help. The Lord is teaching me to rely on His strength. When I need patience, He is ready to aid me in obeying Him. When I need strength, He surprises me by granting me more than I expected. When I need comfort or someone to talk to, God is glorified by me casting my burdens onto Him right then. I pray to Him in the moment as things are happening by stopping everything to pray with the child or by calling out to Him for patience in a situation because mine is insufficient. How thankful I am that He is always there and I, listen to this, I, as his blood-bought child, can pray to him where I am and as I am. The need that we have for Christ is desperate. But it's not just that deep truth that we must admit. It's that we have accessibility to the divine. When we fail to recognize what is offered to us because we are in union with Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in us, when we fail to recognize what's offered, we will run to things that are so much less powerful and present. So listen, you, by His grace and for His glory, can become a mighty prayer warrior. Not because you have some significant spiritual maturity or some gift, but because you recognize two things. You are desperate for Him. And you, as a Christian, have access to Him. Right now, you don't have to take a Bible study. You don't have to go to seminary. The reason this sermon is titled Return to Pray and not Return to Prayer is that return to pray is active. Two verbs, return, pray. Return to prayer, we could be misled to think, I need to become smarter about prayer. I need to study prayer. Even the best books written on prayer will eventually tell you one way or another, put the book down and start praying. We have desperate need and we have access to the divine. Not because we're just connected to him, but because we're one with him, if you're in Jesus. Here's what that means. You have access to God, who is, now hear these, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere present. Now, I want to make up a word, I think. He's also omni-good. We confessed it from the words of Jesus and Luke. He is all good.
But this side of heaven, so much pain, which reveals our desperate need, sometimes makes us question whether he's good. I want to tell you the truth. I question his goodness. And when I do, I know there's no other way to be delivered from that except prayer. And I need it. And I know where to find it. Jesus Christ experienced deep need. Jesus Christ came to this earth to taste your sadness. He died. He rose. He conquered death so that we could have access not simply to him once in a while, but in him. We are one. That's what your desperate need ultimately reveals that there is one. Do you know him? He is offering you life for all eternity. If today you aren't confident that you're his, simply pray if you believe he's moving in your life. I need you, Jesus. I am a sinner. I understand that the only one who can save me is you. And to make sense of what you're praying, I want to encourage you to come and talk to me or one of the pastors or somebody wearing a blue name tag. They'll pray with you. If you are already in Christ, but today you sense that the Lord really is moving you to seek more prayer, come forward during the closing hymn or after the hymn and pray with one of our elders or one of the women in our church. Lastly, at five o'clock today, we are going to return to pray. It's a service that's going to be led by our elders. It will go about one hour. And you may have plans that you can't break. And I understand that. But my friends, what we're going to do at five is what Peter and the ten and a group of women and the mother of Jesus did about half a day after Jesus ascended into heaven. And we will be praying to the same God. Return to pray. Prayer is powerful. In Jesus' name we come. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence. We thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would overwhelm our souls with this desperate need, but also the access that we have to Christ. And may even as we sing, let us think about what we are lifting up and who we're lifting up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.